0: You're listening to Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour, a podcast released on the first three Wednesdays of the month. Family crisis, relationship crisis, addiction crisis, no two crisis situations are the same. They vary by family, individual, and relationship. They can encompass complex family dynamics, emotional distress, anger issues, and entitlements, and often involve substance abuse. This podcast addresses these issues and others surrounding the addiction epidemic currently plaguing this country and the world. There is hope and help.
1: Are you stuck, scared, or unsure of what to do next? If a situation with a loved one, spouse, or even a child has started to spiral, possibly becoming dangerous or threatening, it's time to seek help. My name is Scott H. Silverman. I help families navigate crisis situations. I'm the person you turn to in order to get you and your loved ones
0: unstuck. Welcome back to Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour. This is Michael Glenn Moore. I'm Scott's co-host. And today we have another special guest. Scott, why don't you tell us about it? Okay. Well, Michael, how are you doing? How's everything in your world? Doing pretty good. They finally started work on my house, so I'm getting my roof repaired. Uh, fortunately, they're not doing that today. This is a Saturday, so I don't have that noise, but it's it's great that they finally started. So I, we have an end in sight. Okay, so that chainsaw noise that I'm hearing is in my own head. <laughs> yes, it is.
1: <laughs> well, it makes sense, it is a Saturday. Well, I'm, I'm excited to, to be here today. Again, to all uh, who are listening and watching today, uh, welcome to uh, our happy hour. Our goal each week is to try to find the change agents, the leaders in our community, the influencers, um sometimes we've got a knucklehead or two but today is somebody who's uh, not 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 one of those uh fortunately but uh, I want to welcome our our guests again and make sure you've got my phone number it's 619 993 2738 you know it's interesting people say you know you really shouldn't put your phone number out there you know what my my phone number's out there text or call me anything i can do to help anything we can do to help your family, anything we can do to help get your loved ones access to the highest level of support possible in this environment specifically, text or call me anytime. I'm gonna put my phone up when I'm sleeping, but I'll get your information and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. 619-993-2738, that's my PSA for the morning. All right, I'd like to welcome our guest, William D. Gore. He's the sheriff of San Diego County. And he's not just a sheriff. I think of Bill as a friend. And he, he's I'm going to ask him an unusual question to speak a little bit about our relationship over the years, which he may or may not remember or may or may not want to talk about in a public uh, domain. Anyway, William D. Gore, I'm going to read a couple of things here because this man's history is uh, stunning and he's been a, a committed individual to not only in law enforcement, but to create systemic change and to work on the kind of things that take place that aren't easy for leaders in law enforcement to do, especially in an environment like today. We're going to talk a little bit more specifically about that. So he's a 29th sheriff of San Diego County, started back in July 3rd of 2009, oversees uh, roughly 4,300 employees. And I believe with this uh, bio is a little old because I remember his budget was uh, close to a billion uh, at, at right now and continuing to grow. And the reason is, is our community continues to grow and so do the issues. So... Uh, Bill Gore is a guy that not only has spent time as a San Diego County Sheriff, but also was in the FBI, also worked for the DA and and the FBI Cybercrime Squad. He sits on numerous boards, works very, very closely with the San Diego County Police Chiefs and Sheriff's Association. He's also an advisory member on the Safe Homes Coalition, which is the nonprofit that I run that helps remove unused and unsafe medication from the home. Works on StarPal, Mad and the San Diego Gang Commission, which is where he and I got a little closer years ago. I was one of the few civilians on that, which was an awesome opportunity to learn about it. Bill also went to the same high school, or actually I went to the same high school Bill went to, because he's, I think, a day or two older than I am. His wife was one of the first female FBI agents in the United States. He and his wife, Natalie, have a grown son named Ryan. So with that, what I'd like to do, Bill, I want to turn this over to you. I call him Bill because I owe him money. It just, you know, it's it's the way it works. But the sheriff is a a very well-respected individual. And, you know, not only is he respected, and I want to be careful about this, he's also very well-liked. He's also very popular. Um, I'm also on the Honorary Deputy Sheriff's, which is a nonprofit that supports the sheriff's department. So I've had a chance to intimately get to know a lot of his leadership team. And in San Diego, one of the few communities where law enforcement Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney, and the DA's office and all the different first responders work together in a way that, in my opinion, is exemplary. And it sets the example of how law enforcement should be working together with the criminal justice system and even the treatment community. And we're going to talk a little bit more with that as well. So, Bill, I want to give the mic to you, and I want you just to share with everybody what it is I didn't mention that you think we should all know about uh, Sheriff William Gore.
2: Well, thanks. Uh, thank you, uh, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you kind of hit on one of the most important things I think right at the end of your introduction, your kind introduction. In my 32 years in the FBI, I had the opportunity to really work all over the United States, East Coast, Midwest, Northwest, and I finally took me 27 years of those 32 to get back to San Diego. And, And I worked in some really, you know, good cities, good metropolitan areas. But what I find unique about San Diego, what I think San Diego is so fortunate to have is that that collaboration and cooperation between all levels of law enforcement, not just, you know, the sheriff's department getting along with the police department, it's it's local, state and federal all coming together to look at regionalizing crime problems. Uh, I always say that, that the bad guys don't care if they're in La Mesa, El Cajon, San Diego, or one of our other, other communities around the county. And to the extent we let these artificial, you know, jurisdictional boundaries impact good law enforcement, shame on us. And we don't. We take, like say, crime problems, whether it's cyber crimes, drugs, organized crime, violent crimes, and come together in task force environments where appropriate and address them not only at the investigative level, but at the prosecutive level with United States attorneys and local district attorneys. Uh, they're just not a duplication of effort or reinventing the wheel. And I, I credit that, that level of cooperation and collaboration to a crime rate that really is at 50-year lows.
1: We think it's low because uh, a lot of people are still staying home too, as well, and things have, things have changed a lot. So, w- with that being said, um, tell me—you know—that the, there's a lot of civil unrest, and there also is a lot of issues going on in our community. Kind of speak to, from your perspective, what law enforcement, criminal justice is doing in our community that maybe prevents us from having some of the escalation that seems to be going on. And, you know, an example like a city like Portland, which I think half the population came from San Diego over the years. So well, so what is it that's happening that you think differently here?
2: We've had our issues. There's no doubt about it. But I think we were one of the leaders in community relations. I go back to to my predecessor, uh, Sheriff Collender, who before that was chief of police in San Diego for 13 years. And before that, back in the 60s, was one of their... Uh, First, uh, I think it was a sergeant and lieutenant at the time that stood up their community relations bureau, which was unheard of in law enforcement at that time. And so I think community policing, community-oriented organi- or, or policing has been really ingrained in our all of our deputies, all of our local police officers. So we have those, those relationships. What I find frustrating and all of us find frustrating, I'm sure, throughout law enforcement, is that... We've got, I think, seven hundred, seven hundred fifty thousand 750,000 uh, local law enforcement officers in this country. And uh, there's going to be mistakes made. There's going to be, hopefully, they are mistakes of the mind, not of the heart. And the, the, the d- discouraging part for all of us is, no matter if it happens in Minneapolis or St. Louis or New York, there's this outcry against the 750,000 other law enforcement uh, officers in the country. Uh, you know, I, I remember George Floyd in Minneapolis. That was a, an action that was condemned by law enforcement, all levels of government all over the country, chiefs, sheriffs. Uh, and yet what happened there, I think the representation was that happens everywhere. It was, in my opinion, an aberration, not saying we haven't had mistakes that have been made here, but I think the the instant age of communication, cable news, social media age that we live in, uh, everything uh, is immediately, you know, cast uh, throughout the United States to where we're dealing with, with issues we had no responsibility for whatsoever. And things I think tend to get magnified In, in the last three months. What's especially I think disappointing is the, the level of, of, uh, Engagement, the shouting past each other—it's really difficult to to have a conversation about what we're doing here, what we're doing different than other parts of the country. And, and I know, going back to the chiefs and <laughs> sheriffs' organizations you talked about, we've kind of take a, taken taken a listening mode. And if if advocates and in, in the community come forth with a, a, a proposal, and we just say, "But yeah, well, we're already doing that." It, it turns into an argument. So we're, what we've tried to do is is take all of it in, listen. And then go back in an organized forum of saying, we agree with this. And here's what we're doing. Here's something we're working on. And, and maybe these issues over here, we don't agree with it. And be, explain, be able to explain why we don't agree with that. But you have to have an environment which you can have that dialogue. Uh, we're working very hard to establish those venues, whether it's through a group called Pastors on Point, another group of black ministers called uh, Standing in the Gap uh, individual relationships with the ACLU NAACP urban league to, to get law enforcement, not only just the leaders, but the rank and file in those forums to have those discussions. I think we're, we're getting to that point now in, in the dialogue, hopefully,
1: you know, uh, well, don't forget about my people, you know, now that you're at young Kipper's over with my people are free for some <laughs> meetings as well. You know, they, we love,
2: <laughs> we love EDL is, is an integral part, as you can I, imagine. I, I, in all of our conversations. That, that was a joke, Bill.
1: So, <laughs> you know, when you use that figure, 750,000 across the country, and what, there's 330 million people in our country. When you think about that ratio, I'm just wondering, my wife's, you know, in real estate, and I'm thinking about lawyers. If you added up those numbers, we probably have a lot more and when and, and when I know what it I don't know what it costs to train somebody, but I've heard at some point the expense of training as a first responder, just like somebody who's in the military, it's it's a, a big dollar amount. And when you think about the ratio of, of that many people to to that they have to manage or be aware of or, or be ready and trained for it's almost like a formula for if anything can go wrong, it probably would. when you think about the human issues that are aligned with all the different things that law enforcement has to bump into on a daily basis, plus they wear a uniform and a badge. So they're clearly marked by the community and people know who they are when they're walking down the street. I mean, nobody knows who I am. You know, when you're in civilian clothes, they don't have an idea. So when you're profiled like that, um, what a difficult job to have, number one, Number the,
2: two, help support them. We we and the challenge we have, and we work very hard at it, is, is screening people to become peace officers, law enforcement officers in this country. It's a challenging job. Uh, there's room for abuse. There's a lot of discretion in law enforcement, and that's why I know here in San Diego, uh, you know, we for every hundred we take one deputy for every 100, 115 applicants we get. And there's a screening process involves background investigations and interviews, psychological screening and psychological tests to try to weed out that maybe that racist that's joining law enforcement for the wrong reason. I'll match our screening process for peace officers with any other profession in the country. Not to say it's perfect, but we work very hard at, at, at recruiting and attracting the best people we can in our community. It's, it's a big challenge for us. Well, and, you know, I,
1: you know, the work I do in, in treatment and behavioral health. And, you know, I've met people that, you know, you see them one day and then they start doing some work or they don't they go with some trauma that's untreated. treated. Things can erupt. I don't care how good your screening process is. Uh, things that can trigger people over time. So let's let's swing on to something easy. Uh, you're running the second largest jail system in the state of California. That has to be a lot of fun. What's that like?
2: Well, it's, it's challenging, as you can imagine. Um, no, I can't imagine. That's why I'm asking the question, Bill. Like, like so, many, so many issues in society, whether it's drug abuse and, and the lack of, uh, I think, the proper amount of attention paid to that by our society, mental health issues that I think have been neglected by society, our elected officials, our legislators, all those issues that law enforcement are forced to deal with on the street, or in our jails after these individuals are arrested. You've heard me say before, Scott, a, a third of my inmate population, which prior to COVID was about, oh, anywhere from 5,500 to 6,000 inmates a day, a third of those inmates were on some type of psychotropic drug. These are individuals that have some mental health issues. And people say they, they don't belong in jail. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> they don't belong, but where are, we, where are they going to go? Where are the mental health hospitals that used to be here 50 and 60 years ago? Where's the uh, psychiatric urgent care facilities where the police officer on the beat of the deputy sheriff can take this person that's having a, 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 a usually a, a drug and mental health, uh, you know, co occurring disorder issue in the streets of San Diego? Th- those facilities aren't there, so they take them to my jail. Uh, I think we do a good job. Uh, but I, I'm I'm really tired of dealing with issues that that I would like to see handled better in the community. There's been a lot of talk with the civil unrest about forming teams of social scientists and, and counselors to respond to mental health calls in the community instead of police. I love it. Great, let's go for it. And we have that in San Diego to a certain extent with our psychiatric emergency response teams, PERT clinicians. We have 72. I could use another 72 in San Diego County. I'd love to send them along with deputies and police officers to all of those calls, but there's not enough of them to go around. Uh, and, and the thought that you're going to be able to extract law enforcement from these mental health calls completely is unrealistic. I said, let's go into this with our eyes open. Let's be let's be uh, realistic about this approach. These social scientists, counselors are not going to go into these volatile situations without a peace officer to... to Uh, calm the situation, to bring order to it, so they can come in then and have those conversations, those counseling sessions with the person that's having the behavioral health issue. So I think it's gotta be a team effort. I fully support some of the initiatives that have come in out there to keep them out of my jails. Sometimes it's not gonna work, but you know, we work very hard in our jails to to give people the tools to get them clean and sober and, and give them the counseling and rehabilitation, cognitive behavioral training they need so that when they leave our jails, they have a chance of succeeding back in the community. So they're not just in a revolving door coming back to our jails. Uh, Scott, you're well aware of criminal justice realignment about 10 years ago, that shifted a lot of felons from state prisons to county jails. Mm -hmm. When that happened in 2011, the the recidivism rate in the state of California and the prison system was 72%. It was just a revolving door. Within three years of being released to state prison, they were right back in there. We've lowered that recidivism rate now to about 34 percent so and that's with a lot of hard work that's counseling that's uh, the, the key in there is the cognitive behavioral training that gets into the the thought process that got the person in the jail to start with and and trying to change that and then give them some skills so they can they can be self-reliant when they when they leave our facilities and that means partnering with community organizations maybe that person they leave uh, our facility needs a a sober living bed in the community so we partner with Groups like, I think you've heard of it, Scott, Second Chance, that runs uh, sober living homes in our community, so we can so we can find these people and get them the wraparound service they need when they leave our jail. So it's a big partnership, but I think government can do more uh, to keep them out of my jails to start with. You know,
1: I don't disagree with that, but I also want to add that I think that it's going to require. The community at large, when they look at the approach that you're talking about, because you know you talk about 72 uh, individuals working with the Pert team right now that you mentioned. If I'm not mistaken, half of those were just hired in the last two years with new funding. That's right. When you look at the last five years, just the last five years, the trajectory of increased issues, and, and I know Pert pretty well. I've worked with him for decades. That over 10 years ago, the primary contact call, and I remember when I did my ride along with uh, some of your, one of your captain's teams out of uh, Spring Valley area, the discussion was that the average person that they were talking to, it was 10 plus years ago, when they, when they knocked on the door and there was an issue, it was mostly around substance abuse, alcohol, self-medication. And now 95% of those are, are behavioral health, mental health issues. And I'll tell you, you know, uh, I'll correct you on something. You said those individuals, you know, they, they they won't be able to go in there. Well, no, they'll be able to go in. They just won't get out. <laughs> I mean, you can't you can't go into a violent situation, specifically domestic violence. It, it, you know, it's one of the most high risk, I think, um, entries that your law enforcement makes, and be able to just talk somebody down who has a knife in their hand, or you know, is raging on PCP, or is on fentanyl, or heroin, or hasn't slept in four days because they you know they've been taking methamphetamine. So, I was on a zoom a couple weeks ago and i used the word dope fiend and somebody chatted with me privately you know to to, to be uh, totally honest you know you know uh, i want to give you feedback like they said um, you know we're not using that term anymore i said well you know, we are in the street i mean the people who know people you know peer-to-peer we, we talk about it so you know i think when you factor in all the things that are going on right now, and I also believe that we're going to see some acceleration in the problems before they, they tend to calm down. But I, I you know, crime is coming down. It's good to see I think it. Was you
2: know, you're so you're very familiar with, obviously, you know, with that uh, drug treatment programs since uh, the last 20 years, I, I've anybody that will listen to me, I've talked about, you can't arrest your way out of the drug problem in this country. It's, as long as we keep, you know, addressing the supply side, supply side, and and not address the demand side, I could, when I was in the FBI, at had 250 agents here in the San Diego office, we were focusing on the area on a Felix drug cartel, and I could have put all 250 working on that, that case, or those drug cases, and, and unless you address the demand for those drugs on this side, we're never going to have an impact, and I would to the chagrin of a lot of my counterparts, I'd say, take half of my budget and put it into education and treatment programs. So there's a, this is a big border we got, (laughs) whether it's the Mexican border, the coast of California, if the demand is here, they will find a way to get those drugs in. And, and, you know, it's sexy to be a a lawmaker and be tough on crime and all this good stuff. But I think we see what the impact it really has uh, on the overall drug problem in this country. (laughs) We're going the wrong way.
1: Well, and, you know, I'm an SME here in San Diego, subject matter expert, and I talk about this all the time, you know, on television and radio when I can. And, you know, no one talks about the dark web. And the dark web, you know, I listen to kids today. They can go online. They can use some form of electronic money like Bitcoin. They can order whatever they want that's on the planet. It can be shipped to them. And guess what? They don't have to go through a border. They don't have to go through an airport. They don't have to go through a train station. It comes right through USPS.
2: Don't it comes,
1: right to your door <laughs> comes from big containers that are dropped off in large states, and then they mail the packages individually the and to your point about demand I mean if I was a a, a de, de, manufacturer of any substance off offshore anywhere in the world, i wouldn't ship anywhere else but the u s because the consumer is here and they're hungry for it and they're demanding it and they want it and they've got money to spend on it so Clearly, you know someone was talking the other day about the Portugal, uh, you know, example how they've done some things there that have really been effective. It was legalization, but I don't want to get into that today. So, let me go back to you and, and San Diego. Okay, <laughs> because it's you know it's our home and and you know there's so much going on globally right now. So, mm-hmm. tell us about the um, the pieces that you would like to maybe work on, and you've mentioned some of them because we have just a couple minutes left that and i'm gonna you go to my magic wand question if you had a magic wand and you could go to the board of supervisors and the mayor and the influencers and all those groups and you get them all in the room at the same time rather than you know I, I said somebody asked me last month and you know i'm working on my new book how are you gonna i said i'm not gonna go to rotary clubs and i'm a rotarian and talk to 17 people a week there's got to be a better way to get this information out on a platform that gets more people informed educates more creates prevention and that people latch on to reducing this stigma about what it is we really need to do to help the members of our community so if you had a magic wand Bill, what would you like to do
2: well i think so much of a, the, the so many of the issues we deal with revolve around that that behavioral health issue we've talked about that and and the drug issue the other issues of cyber crimes we can develop the expertise and and come together as a law enforcement community to address those issues uh which we're doing but to see social issues underlying social issues of uh, uh, i think behavioral health and substance abuse and then combining those two the that we we deal with and i think there's some good legislation good discussion at the board level i think people are starting to recognize it it's not unique to san diego every sheriff in the country every jailer deals with these same issues is coming up with, there's a plan to come up with some of these uh, psychiatric urgent care facilities, an alternative to jail. When when a family member is having a, a a problem with one of their loved ones acting out, they don't have to call the police. There's somebody that's going to respond that can deal with it and take them maybe uh, someplace other than jail. That's a great step in, in the right direction. So not think-
1: just a traditional detox, but actually kind of like a, behavioral health detox where it's not just somebody who's completely self medicated and, you know, in semi comatose state, but actually somebody right. who might be acting out having an episode and, you know, different than say county mental health with their three day hold, but you know, someplace where they can be triaged. Right. Uh, I don't think, I don't think we actually, you know, cause technically the ERs or the you know, emergency departments are where people go, but you know, I, I can't even get referrals to confidential recovery from the EDs because they tell me if you don't take Medi-Cal, we can't refer clients.
2: There's, you know, I know last year, uh, District Attorney Summer Stefan and I uh, supported a bill looking at uh, the psychiatric emergency care. Supervisor Fletcher is working on putting one trying to locate one up between UCSD and Scripps Mercy up in Hillcrest. Uh, so the plans are there that more mental health clinicians, PERT clinicians out in the field, I think would be a great angle. Uh, frustration for me, you know, we have detox, we have uh, the serial inebriate center, and yet if the person is acting out of any kind of violent form, they won't take them. So then, then they come to my jail where we sober them up. There's got to be another place, maybe not a psychiatric urgent care, but a detox facility with with security that can also take care of those people if they're acting out until they do sober up and then be in that position to refer them to resources, not just pat them on the button and knock them out the door once they're sober, uh, but have do that in conjunction with resources that, you know, you you can lead in the water, you can't make them drink all the time. I know that, but at least introduce them to the resources to maybe start getting them the help they need.
1: Right. Plant those seeds. Speaking of, you know, I just remembered something I wanted to share with our, our audience today. Um, a couple of years ago, Narcan was being introduced in our community mm-hmm. at um, naloxone. And Narcan was, you know, the the reversal of an overdose uh, that can be administered initially, I think, with an injection, and then it went to a nasal spray. And if I'm not mistaken, um, San Diego County Sheriff's Department was the group that actually got on board with it. And I think if I remember right, you telling me once that you actually had to go to a state level to help get the laws changed or a law changed. So would you tell us about, because that was very proactive and I know there's big controversy and people still say, well, if somebody wants to overdose, you might as well just let them. And my attitude is, well, that's like saying let's don't have sobriety checkpoints. Let's don't have sworn officers in the street. Let's don't have behavioral health supporters. That's a, you know, that's kind of like if you don't pick up a drink, you won't have a drinking problem. So Tell us about that story. I hear that
2: from people that don't have a family member that's haven't had an addiction problem or something like that. They have
1: had one. They've been impacted negatively by somebody somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah.
2: I've been to, I was at a meeting with the, uh, the uh, what they used to be called the, the drug czar, the, uh, the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy. He was the acting director at the time. He's from Boston. And he talked about uh, something that they'd done in New England somewhere, might've been Boston, where they were distributing uh, Narcan, naloxone, to uh, police officers because we are frequently the first one on scene to an overdose. Uh, and the medics show up after we're there, and I went back and I said well, that makes a lot of sense. Let's look at it because I mean overdoses are uh, becoming more and more prevalent in our community. This was I want to say seven or eight years, eight years ago probably in my first term as sheriff, and we started looking into it and there was a law that prohibited us from from doing it. Uh, uh, Peace officers. So we had to go to Sacramento. We got the law changed to allow peace officers to administer uh, uh, Narcan uh, in case of overdose. We started with a pilot project in our Santee uh, station. And in six months we'd saved 13 lives. And then we took it countywide in our jurisdiction. Now I think in, pardon me in San Diego, uh most of the local law enforcement agencies, uh issue that to there and our officers and it's going up and down the state of California. And there's no doubt that we've saved lives. It's not to address the critics. It's not just a matter of well you we bring them back and dust them off, and say, okay, good luck. Uh we try to get them the resources again that they need to to break this vicious, you know, disease, this habit they're in, and try to get them the resources if if they don't give it to them. We try to give it to the family members, different avenues, different resources in the community to get them the help they need. So yeah, I'm really proud of that program. I know we've saved lives, and maybe they, they go back and they overdose again, but I know we've saved lives once, and we've got people that have turned their lives around after coming that, that, that close call with death.
1: I remember being in your office a couple of years ago. I had to sneak in because when you heard I was coming, you put an extra... We
2: yeah, have tight security, Scott.
1: I know it is it's very tight. And we were talking about this and it was like the second or third year the program had been going because I came to talk to you about how we can be an extension of that. What happens when you you know, give in for pe- people information when they come out of their overdose or when you're talking to people at the emergency departments. And at that year, I believe that it was something like 63 people's uh, lives that were saved just by the sheriff's department, just by having that medication on the rigs. In case it was needed and by the way i'm sure you read the paper literally a week ago the last week of september uh it was said that there are three people overdosing at san diego per day per day this year three people and i think that's well over 200 percent of last year i don't have the data yet but you know we're going into the toughest season uh for people emotionally to deal with things that take place uh during the holiday plus it's an election year plus we have the COVID issue so
2: we also started a program that I'm really proud of that has caught on now and gone countywide, and I'm sure it's spread beyond San Diego County, where instead of just trying to save the person that OD'd, go in and, and assign investigators to track that back, uh, see where that, maybe that overdose of, of fentanyl that was laced into his uh, uh, the particular drug he was taking, where that came from. We've had successful cases where we prosecuted the and tracked it back to the dealer that had a batch of bad drugs that went out in the community and you had three and four and five overdoses at a time. And now the uh, DEA narcotics task force has got a special group that just looks at that. So we're not just, you know, dealing with the same problem and over trying to get to the root of it in some of these, in some of these cases. Well,
1: and, and let people know that, you know, there's other, we call it operation relocation, you know, operation interrupt us because they're going to, they're going to sell it no matter what. So better, but if we can get it out of our community where it can be monitored differently. So tell me, My last question to you, I'm going to turn it over to Michael because he usually has the best questions. Mm -hmm. What can the community do for you? I mean, I, I'm not speaking for the community, but you know, you know, me, my, you call me anytime. And if something comes up, we always try to work together on it quickly. But if you had a part of the magic wand question, what would you want the community to hear from you right now that you would, boy, dear community, can we ask you to, or may I suggest, what would that look like?
2: Well, Right now, I would like when I speak to groups, whether it's Rotary, right, I say law enforcement, we are the community. It's not us against you. And that's so sad what I've seen with some of the civil unrest. That's the narrative. Uh, you know, it's the cops that are bad. We are the, we are the community. We're the little league coach. We're the you know, we're the ones that uh, that are in school with your kids. And uh, we're, we're in this together. And, and if we're going to make our communities better, it's going to take us dialoguing, coming up with mutual uh, uh, solutions to these to these problems. And I'm not saying there's not problems. I think they get blown out of proportion on occasion. But there are problems. And and uh, we're not going to solve these by yelling at each other. We've got to sit down and have a dialogue and work together and, and agree where we can and see what things we can work on jointly together. And, and just lower the temperature. You, as we know in, in this country, everything has become so political. And there's unstable people on the far right and there's unstable unstable people on the far left. And as this rhetoric goes up, uh, we're we're activating people on both sides. We've seen it with deputy sheriffs shot point blank up in, in Los Angeles. We've seen it with the right wing individual, Midwest, there shooting people at a demonstration. We're not, that's not what this country's about. Uh, And and if we can just talk about these issues in a, in a a civil forum, uh, that's the message I'm trying to get out.
1: That's a good one. I think when we, when we opened, you talked about listening and I, when I talk with families, I remind them, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth. So (laughs) we have have to try twice as hard maybe to listen. And and I think if we were spending less time talking and one of the things, you know, we used to teach years ago was uh, with folks is if two people are talking, nobody's listening. Why? Who's sounds that? like a debate I recently saw on TV.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Michael, <clears throat> where's, where's the wisdom from you? What's the big question of the day from you, young man?
0: Well, it's pretty basic. Uh, but I think if uh, there's bound to be at least one person among our listeners who may want to know. Okay, Bill, what's the difference between a police officer and a sheriff's deputy?
2: Well, I get that at every speech I give. Basically, there's not one bit of difference between a deputy sheriff and a police officer on the street, but the difference between a sheriff like me and a chief of police, it's uh, a lot of differences. Uh, A chief of police is responsible like Dave Nestle in San Diego. Police is for the city of San Diego, 1.3 million people. I police in nine uh, nine incorporated cities and unincorporated San Diego County which is about a million people. So I police for about a million people, but that's only one of my three operational areas. As we've discussed, I already run all the jails in San Diego County. If you're arrested in San Diego County on a state charge, you're going to one of my jails. None of the local jurisdictions have jails. Uh, I also am responsible for security in all the courtrooms in San Diego County. It's about 165 courtrooms mm-hmm. and all the weapon screening. We screen about 3 million people a year through our, all of our courthouses in San Diego County. then we have all the regulatory responsibilities of a sheriff that a chief of police doesn't have. We register sex offenders, drug offenders. Uh, We do conceal weapons permits, a large regulatory responsibility that falls on the sheriff. Plus we are the chief law enforcement officer in any County in California responsible for mutual aid. We saw during the uh, recent civil unrest in La Mesa and other places around the County, it's been the sheriff's department. If, if Chula Vista wants help, in a a situation, they come to the Sheriff's Department. We put together maybe just our deputies or deputies and then officers from Escondido, Carlsbad into a a composite team to go in to uh, assist them. Plus, we want a, a regional crime laboratory, which services everybody in the county except San Diego Police Department. They have their own lab, but they do just the city of San Diego. So it's a there's times when, when Dave Nisleit and I have laughed. I said, I'd love to just be responsible for policing, and not have all these other issues going on. But it's the deputy on the street that's giving you a ticket is the same as the police officer in San Diego giving you a ticket. And they have responsibilities and jurisdiction. Actually, a peace officer can enforce California law anywhere in the state of California. But we try to stay on our own turf.
0: Well, you certainly are earn not your, earn your key. That's a lot to, to have to deal with. Okay, so um, do you have a quote to see us out, Michael? One more quick, quick question for clarity, Bill. It, okay. it, and you're
1: elected, correct? You you run for election to be uh, nominated and voted in as sheriff. And now, is that is that true across the country where sheriffs are elected and, and police
2: chiefs are h- hired as an employee? Most places, Most but places. not all places. It's interesting as you look at sheriffs around the country on the East Coast, Northeast. Sheriffs, a lot of them up there might just be jailers, have no law enforcement responsibilities. Right. Some of them are just uh, responsible for serving civil process papers, that type of thing. The further west you come in the United States, then you, you come into what we are, like full service sheriffs, where we do you know, courts, jails, and law enforcement. Uh, there's a certain amount of independence with a sheriff. Uh, I, don't, I work for the people of San Diego County. Although I'm smart enough, I learned this from my predecessor, Bill Colliner. Yeah, the board of supervisors, you know, they're not my boss, but they do control the budget. And so it behooves us to work collaboratively with the board also. Where a chief of police, there's no doubt, he works for the mayor or the city manager, depending on the form of government. He's appointed. I'm elected. There's a lot more freedom and independence to be a sheriff. The downside is... You have to do everything. Four years, I got to run for office. And uh, it's probably the most... distasteful thing I've ever done I never thought I would run for office it, it's not I, I enjoy the people part of it but the bad part is like I'm sure every elected official will tell you is asking people for money and that's sadly the the, the, the blood of any campaign is raising money and uh, uh, I find it I, I laughed about it I, I find it a built-in conflict with law enforcement asking people for money I said you know from my when I first ran, I said, you know, I've been in law enforcement for 40 years. And I said, I, I put cops and FBI agents in jail for taking money. Now it's a part of my job description. <laughs> and it just, it's, it's foreign to me. But anyway, uh, once you get it, it's a great job. It's four-year term. Uh, there are no term limits on it. Uh, I'm in my third term. And
1: uh, it's
2: very rewarding. You're going to do it again? I n- never say never. Uh, Scott. Yeah. But, <laughs> I don't run until 2022 again. Oh, you don't have to worry about that. All
1: right, Michael, sorry, back to you, buddy.
0: <clears throat> I was just going to ask him to go ahead and see us out with his
2: quote. Yeah, You know, I, I, I thought about that, and I thought, you know, I don't have any really catchy quote, but I like to refer to it's – a, it's a little plaque. It's about that big, and it's been on the front of my desk now for I, I, probably 35 years, and it's really simple, and it says attitude in big letters down below it. It says, is everything. And it's so true in your professional life, your personal life. I've worked with so many people that the glass is always half empty and they're determined to be miserable themselves and make everybody around them miserable. And uh, I've always thought that whether it's in my work life, my personal life, professional is to the glass is half full kind of guy and, and go, go into things with a positive attitude it's, it's, it's been a good, uh, like to say, giving me uh, a lot of comfort over the years. I think it's, uh, it's worked well for the people around me that I've had the privilege to lead. Uh, Cause I hope I spread that attitude throughout the organization. And my dad, dad, when I was growing up, he went through the San Diego police department and retired as the number two man. And he used to laugh saying, you know, this, this whole management thing, it's not rocket science, it, you know, you go up, as you go up in organizations, you, you just try to treat people the way you'd like to be treated yourself. I'm like, that's pretty clever, right? And I, I've gone to a lot of management schools myself, and that's kind of a guiding theme through a lot of them. And let's not overcomplicate it. You know, go in things with a positive attitude and treat other people like you'd like to be treated, and uh, you'll be successful, and the organization you lead will be successful.